This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Welcome back for part two with Adam Grant. Have you paid attention to what Elon Musk does in Tesla with the production line? Tell me more. I wish I'd studied this more closely. So I'm going to give you my memory of this. It could be a little bit off, but my understanding is anybody can stop the production line at any time and anyone can experiment on a better way to do something. And there was one story they told, I forget what the guy was like trying to simplify the way that windshield wipers were cut. It wasn't that, but it's something like that. And so he ends up stopping the line and uh, somebody came over and was like, what the hell are you doing? Because there was like this pile of uh, rejected blades from his test or whatever. It wasn't blades again, but you get the idea. And I, the guy was like, oh no, Elon wants us to do this. Like if we think that we have a way that we can improve something by whatever metric, then we're able to stop it and, and experiment. And it probably isn't. You can just stop down the line and take it over. But it's like something that has spare capacity or whatever, like you can go um, work on it. And I just thought, ooh, that is really smart because you want, like one thing I'm always telling my team, because companies companies go through phases. You start in what I call the hustler phase. In the hustler phase, everybody's doing everything. Um, I'm hyper-involved. I'm having to create the momentum. I've only got generalists. I don't have anybody specializing in anything. We just have to wear too many hats. Uh, you can really make a mistake staying in the hustler phase too long. You want to get to professional management as quickly as you can, where people begin to specialize that there's very formal things that you're trying to do and accomplish and all that. But as I mentioned earlier, I don't scale, no, no CEO scales. So you very quickly have to be in a position where in the beginning it was like, yeah, just ask me and I'll give you the answer. We're all sitting in one room. Yep. Do that, do that, do that. And then you get to the point where it's like, I won't answer that question anymore. You have to know how to solve this problem. And if you can't solve this problem, and maybe it won't be as efficiently as, as me because you don't have my experience, whatever. But if you can't solve that problem, I'm going to replace you with somebody that can. And back to Elon, he said, you're paid in direct proportion to the difficulty of the problem you solve. And I think that's exactly right. And so you need people that can think for themselves, which means that you have to like, you cannot turn people into automata. And one of the mistakes that managers make is they think their value is in being needed. Going back to your thing about being needed, they think their value is in being needed. Your value is not in being needed. Your value is in helping those people shine. And if a manager says to themselves, I can't do anything. All I can do is make sure the right people are on the right task, that I have the right team with the right motivation and clarity, then interesting things happen. So interesting. I, I I think you're you're articulating a few things that um, that I guess my world of organizational psychology has has tried to codify. So um, I think first of all, there's a great set of studies by Toby Wall and colleagues that looked at what happens when you brought in advanced manufacturing technology um, to you know much more traditional um, machines, and so people are are more or less learning to work with robots for the first time. And as part of that, they end up getting additional autonomy. And it's a test to try to figure out what, like, is this autonomy good? Do they use it effectively or not? And it turns out when you give people autonomy, um, the machines end up um, getting, um, they, they have lower downtime basically because people have, like, they, they felt like, okay, it's my responsibility now to make sure that the robot can work. And so if the machine goes down, 
I'm going to learn the skills to fix it. And that's good, right? You want, you want people to be able to take that initiative. The other thing that happens though, is that you have fewer faults in the first place, because once people started fixing the machines and they felt like it was something they had ownership over, they learned what was causing the problems and they were able to prevent them in the first place. And so I, I think you're making a, a compelling case that has some good data behind it, suggesting, yeah, we want to, we want to let people take that initiative. I will say uh, Elon Musk would be the first person to tell you, you should be hesitant to take management advice from Elon Musk. I think we should all be cautious about that. We don't know how much of his success is because of his strategies versus in some cases, in spite of his strategies. Let's map that out. So I will take the very, um, I was, I was, I'll be, I'll dial back the controversy here. I was very uh, impressed with how he moved when he came into X, formerly Twitter. Uh, I think some people are going to hate that statement. Where does Adam Grant fall on that statement? I I, I was not excited about a bunch of the choices he made. Okay. Um, they, they, Tell me which ones and why you didn't like them. I mean, first of all, downsizing the empirical evidence is, it could not be more negative on a strategy for organizational change. There was one paper actually published in a top management journal calling downsizing, quote, dumb and dumber. And when academics use that kind of language, the, the data have to be pretty, uh, pretty airtight. Um, so in those studies, you look but at what were what were they judging it against? Because yeah, looking at it as an entrepreneur, I'm like, you just bought a company that's rapidly going out of business, and if and look, I'm I'm taking him at his word in terms of how much capital they were burning, yeah. but there is no option other than to downsize when you're burning the kind of capital they were burning. Well, maybe, right? I think that's the open question. So if you look at the downsizing research, you I think in the, the study I'm thinking of, um, I want to say uh, Aura Data, Guthrie, among others, you're looking at about 5,000 companies. Um, you match them with, with controls that have similarly dire financial straits. And then you look at what happens to the companies that downsize versus the ones that took other steps like executive pay cuts, for example. Um, and it turns out that the companies that downsize do consistently worse. So what goes wrong when you downsize? Number one, you eliminate people whose jobs were indispensable and you didn't know it until you lost them. And we've seen versions of that at, at X, um, especially when the platform became unstable. Two, um, you end up seeing that your most talented people are the most likely to leave because they have the most options elsewhere. They see the writing on the wall, like this ship is sinking. I don't want to be on it. And three of the talented people who stay, you also run into the problem of survivor guilt where they, they start to feel really terrible that, you know, equally competent people have their jobs lost. Um, they start to focus really narrowly on what they need to do to keep their jobs as opposed to broadly on innovating to improve the company. And it seems to be a net losing proposition. I'm not going to say never downsize, but I think it's, it's really rash to come in and think this is going to be your, your magic bullet to try to fix Twitter. Okay. So I, I, that's my first beef. I love it. So we won't know whether what he's doing makes any sense for, let's say another year. Uh, but I'll happily play back this clip if I end up just being woefully wrong. I'm happy to be wrong too, right? Because the interesting thing about my job is I can tell you what works on average for most of the people most of the time in a situation like this and say, like, downsizing is not a strategy that I would bet on. Right. But there may be cases where it's effective. There may be cases where, to your point, it's just totally necessary. Um, but I think there were alternatives and I would have loved to see those Run the A-B test. Let's, let's experiment with some other options before you cut people's jobs. Mm. All right. So here's why I was very excited watching him come in and do his thing. Um, one, I want to be very clear. It bums me out when people lose their job. I'm, I'm not indifferent to that. It, when, when you have run companies for as long as I have, when I say you take it very personally that people have a job, that they can count on you, that their families are able to count on that job... I can't say that Elon cares. Maybe he doesn't. I'm just saying I'm about to give you my take on this. And so I want to be very clear that that is not lost to me. And I'm mortified every time I have to let somebody go, even when it's for cause, I hate it. But nonetheless, you have a business. There are only two options when you are losing money. Option number one, make more money. Option number two, spend less money. That's it. There's yep. no magical third option. So making more money is always the right answer if you can do it. The bad news is it takes a lot of time and there are huge question marks. And so you might have an idea and you think, okay, this is really going to work. But if it doesn't, you're in trouble. 
Cutting costs, on the other hand, has instant impact. Now, he took the company public, or sorry, private. So there's one thing I'm about to say that he didn't have to worry about, but just as a general rule, because we're recording this right after Disney made their announcements of the massive budget cuts, um, and their stock price soared. The reason their stock price soared is because people that own the stock understand you can't operate at a loss like that. Like you've got to do something. And so if I'm if I have tracked it closely and, and maybe I've missed some of it with Disney, but they um, cut number one was staff. And then a future cut that they plan to do is basically doing less content. And so not all cuts have to be at, at the employee's expense. A hundred percent. I'm all for executive compensation reduction. If they're not delivering results, fucking slash and burn baby, myself included. First of all, as the owner of my companies, I'm paid last, not second to last, last motherfucker. I have not made a single dime off of impact theory. I have just shoveled all the profits back into the company. I've shoveled my own money into the company. So my money is very much where my mouth is. Now, Elon comes in, realizes, okay, we're in dire straits here. He's super controversial by this point. So advertisers are fleeing the platform like crazy because they think he's a right-wing nut job. So he's thinking to himself, if he's smart, I'm going to try to make more money off of my anti-bot thing with the subscriptions, but I don't know if people are going to go for that. So I, I, I'm going to do it, but I can't count on it. Uh, the mentality as perceived by myself as an outsider, I have no idea. I could be totally wrong, but from the outside, looking at the rate of new features that they added was so ridiculously slow. And when I watch him, look, admittedly, as somebody who, again, I've built companies for people that are hearing my voice for the first time, I built and sold a billion dollar company. I know what it's like to build companies. That shit is hard. What he does is crazy. He might be a lunatic. I might hate him if I ever met him. I'm not, not standing up for who he is as a person. I'm just saying the results he has gotten from a business perspective are unparalleled in this generation. Like this guy is unreal. What he's doing is just, it. it's peerless right now. I'm not saying in yeah, history. Yeah, I agree with that. But rare, rare, rare is the entrepreneur like Elon Musk. So anyway, I see him come in and he's like, "I, we have a culture document, Adam Grant, that again, maybe you would love, but maybe not. I think you would respond to it. Whether you think it's wise of me to do is a totally different question. <laughs> but it says, we are looking for, and I quote, hardcore motherfuckers. <laughs> and- that was the bat signal that he threw into the sky. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with you that I'm sure a lot of people fled, but he'll attract a completely different kind of person who's like, I want to be in an organization that we're hardcore. Like we're going to do something unprecedented. We're going to build the everything app. Like we're going to go ham. And because I like that energy so much, mm -hmm. and I try to bring that energy to my company, uh, now, ah, you'd have to ask my staff and I'm not around to find out if this is really true. I don't think I'm an asshole. I'm not everybody's flavor. I liken myself to black licorice. If you like me, you like me. Does anyone like black and licorice? If you, I love black licorice really? more than you can imagine. Wow. I can't and even imagine. This is my bad signal to all the people that like black licorice. Uh, so look, we are not the right company for everybody, nor is I'm sure X or any other company yeah. that Elon Musk touches. But seeing somebody come in and say, I want hardcore people, uh, I don't come back if you're not willing to work long, hard, and smart. That energy to me is intoxicating. It's exciting. And because I love it, I want it to work. If it doesn't, I'll acknowledge it. I will accept it. I only care about what actually works. But that was incredibly exciting. Now, again, if they can be believed, they will be hitting profitability in the not too distant future, which when he took it over, they were losing like $40 million a month or something just insane. So I don't disagree with most of what you said. I think where, where I struggle a little bit is I think Elon had a competitive advantage in electric cars and in rockets that he does not have in social media, which is if you want to be an aerospace engineer, SpaceX is the job of choice. Um, they're far ahead of their competition. Um, if you want to work on electric cars, Tesla is still this, it's the place to be. Nobody's looking around. No software engineer is like, my dream company is Twitter. 
Like, I think that company is going to change the world. And I like that is a literal rocket ship and I want to be part of it. And so I think he has much more competition. I think it's way harder to do that in social. I also think that the, you know, the specific vision he brought to the table was not compelling to people in the same way as I want to create um, an escape hatch, you know, for like, I want to colonize space. I want to get people to Mars. Like we need a hard drive backup for humanity or like I want to fight climate change and we need a different source of, you know, of, of power for cars. You weren't rallied by free speech? Um, not no. everybody is. I get it. No, because like, I mean, everybody's seen the, the XKCD cartoon, right? That says like What's freedom. It, it's, it's, I, I'm not going to do it justice here, but let's call it up. Yeah. If let's you let's tell bring it up. Let's here. do it right now. XKCD, all letters. Here we go. This is it. Oh God, it's too small. Zoom in. <laughs> go for it, Tom. You can all do right. the honors. Uh, Public service announcement, this stick figures. So there's a stick figure saying public service announcement, the right to free speech means the government can't arrest you for what you say. It doesn't mean that anyone else has to listen to your bullshit or host you while you share it. The First Amendment doesn't shield you from criticism or consequences. If you're yelled at, boycotted, have your show canceled or get banned from an internet community, your free speech rights aren't being violated. It's just that the people listening think you're an asshole and they're showing you the door. Okay, so uh, yeah, I don't have a beef with that. What I will I will say, dear society, is a public service announcement. You'll shoot your society in the fucking face with that attitude. But nonetheless, it's true. If people want to vote against you, they absolutely should be able to. However, in when people on one side of the political spectrum are being not banned, but shadow banned, silenced, censored at whatever 10x the rate, uh, that gets worrisome. Like I legitimately get worried. I, I haven't researched the Twitter files, but certainly that is the... The word coming out of the PR machine. Now, if that's total bullshit, fine, fair enough. But it, I will admit that's how it felt. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people felt that way. And what I want to know is, is that sentiment or is that something that can be backed up by the data? And one, um, I will say, and I, I come at this you know, really wanting to, to follow wherever the data go, and I'm, I'm 100% open to being wrong and changing my mind on this. Um, one, I, I've read one body of research on social media suggesting that, okay, yes, conservatives were canceled at a slightly higher rate than liberals, um, or at least shadow banned or whatever, whatever you want to talk about it. Their, their, their posts did not take off to the same degree. They also spread misinformation at higher rates than liberals did. And so like th- this is actually interestingly a conservative critique of liberals that you could flip and say, and by the way, I, I would not identify as a liberal. Like I don't believe in political parties to begin with, which is a whole nother conversation. Um, I don't think your belief should ever line up with a whole group of people on multiple issues. You're not thinking for yourself Facts. at that point. Um, and you're definitely not doing critical thinking uh, if you just you know, parrot the, the positions of your party. But anyway, uh, that's another conversation. I think the, you know, I, so often on, um, like, I, I think conservatives rightly critique, um, you know, data on, um, on opportunity in all kinds of domains by saying, like, we don't want equality of outcomes. We want equality of opportunity. And if different groups have different outcomes, we don't know whether that's because they were not as, you know, as good or because they were disadvantaged. Um, so let's go to the opportunity thing. I would say the same thing here. Just because one group um, is, you know, is sort of, uh, I don't even want to say banned, um, is de-boosted or de-amplified at a greater rate than others doesn't mean they didn't deserve it. Um, and if you're spreading rampant misinformation or disinformation, um, and that can be independently and responsibly fact-checked, um, I think Elon said, and I, this is one of my favorite things he did when he bought Twitter. He said, I want us to become the most reliable source of information mm-hmm. on earth. Well, then you have to have metrics for gauging reliability. Um, and I think community notes was an effort at that. I think tweeting conspiracy theories is not helpful to that mission in any way, shape, or form. Okay, let's talk about community notes because we'll, that'll be the platform on which we will agree. So I am sure that it has its flaws and its problems and all that, but I don't see a better way other than if the wisdom of the crowd 
is calling out saying, hey, this is a problem. And he's talked about how the algorithm of community notes works. It's like people that typically disagree need to agree on the note for it to become a note. And I was like, ooh, that's saucy. So look, I haven't looked super closely at it, but that feels like the right answer. If you can come up with the right algorithm for, hey, people that normally disagree actually agree on this thing, the odds then of this being believable are pretty high. I'll take for now that it isn't being hacked, right? Because yeah. of course, I'm sure there are ways to gamify that. Yeah. And what you're talking about is called a bridging algorithm, right? Which you, we we need more of to identify the overlapping points of view between mm. people who normally are on very different um, ends of a spectrum. I think the other thing we need to do though is we ought to be looking at, look at Wikipedia. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need and Impact Theory's own chief financial 
financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Wikipedia. The Wikipedia that deleted me? Yes, the Wikipedia yeah, you that can deleted imagine you. imagine I don't exactly have a lot of faith in Wikipedia. I mean, I, I don't know what happened there. All I know is why. empirically, um, Wikipedia put encyclopedias out of business. Because they created a process for people to gain credibility. It's it's a little bit like what Ray does at Bridgewater. Um, we're going to build a believability score based on your track record of, of being right in the past in a domain, right? Which is very domain specific. You could do that. Um, we could have a series of edits that go back and forth. And then there's a group of independent arbiters who then try to take a look at the sources and, and resolve. It is remarkable. I mean, if you, if you pitched Wikipedia today and people didn't know it existed and you called it something else, people would tell you you're mad. Like, there's no way you could get the internet to agree on anything. My read of the evidence is on average, it's surprisingly accurate. Hmm. And so there's something that's working more often than it's not. Why aren't we studying that? Why aren't we you know, incorporating that potentially into a platform that we bought would be my question. Interesting. So what is it? What's the difference? Not the difference. Why is community notes worse than Wikipedia? I don't know if it is. I just haven't seen the data. Because that to me feels like it's a similar-ish approach. I don't know how the algorithm works on Wikipedia, so I can't say. But going back to um, the- Well, actually, can I throw out one thing that I think would be relevant here? I think that where we ran into a a lot of trouble over the past few years is people posting information that has health or safety consequences. Um, with huge followings that goes viral before it's fact-checked. Mm. And so I think that in an ideal world, um, community but notes would have a filter. We can, we can have independent fact-checkers. We can have experts with different Why political persuasions. Um, because not all crowds are equally wise. Like this is the the fundamental lesson of wisdom of crowds research mm-hmm. is some crowds are much more insightful than others. And we want to figure out, we, we want to, you can do this, for example, in forecasting. Um, Phil Tetlock and his colleagues have some remarkable data showing that some people are better at predicting future events than others. And it's domain agnostic. In other words, we can ask them what's going to happen to the price of Bitcoin in six months. We can ask them who's going to win um, the Olympic gold in gymnastics uh, in 2024. We can ask them who's going to win an election in a given country. And there are certain people who will outperform um, most of the world on each of those questions because they are better at overcoming confirmation bias. They're better at recognizing their assumptions and then pressure testing those assumptions and rethinking their convictions. If they get an initial signal, they might be wrong. That's a skill set. Guess what? I want those people making our forecasts. I want those people weighing in um, as part of the crowd that's going to judge. I don't think we should run community notes like a democracy where everyone has an equal vote. I think that some opinions are more credible than others, don't you? Yeah, no, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, I just want to make sure that that's as broad of a SWAT. Like for instance, if there's nine people that have that predictive ability, I'm not for it anymore. It's just way too easy for nine people to either collude, get biased, whatever, have an angle. Uh, That would be a huge problem. And it's a problem if they have a shared affiliation. So if it's a bunch of liberals Mm -hmm. who share that skill, well, there's something wrong with the way that we're measuring predictive accuracy. Um, and we also need to do a better job democratizing the knowledge so that people can improve their skills. Yeah. So when it's when it is a broad set that there's some criteria in this case, algorithmically, just to keep it simple, that these are people that traditionally disagree, but they agree on this thing. When there's some set of rules like that, I can get behind it when it's a broad set of people. So my my very aggressive bias is that when something becomes top-down, that is when things lead to just nightmare scenarios. And long-time listeners of my show will be sick of hearing me say this, but for newbies, uh, I will say this. There's a trifecta of books you need read, and at the end of those, I seriously doubt you will ever want top-down control. That is Mao, The Untold Story, The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and... um, the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. If you read those, if you want a fourth for spice, read uh, The Red Famine. And all of a sudden you're going to be like, fuck that. I do not want anything top down. It can just, when it deranges, it deranges so hard that millions, in some cases, 
tens of millions, in other cases, over a hundred million people end up dead. And that that scares me so much. And PS, I just assume I'm one of the bad guys that that I wouldn't see it, that I would break bad and not realize it. It's scary. And so I don't want the power. I don't want other people to have the power. Like yeah. I want this as diversified as possible, which brings me to the other point that I will make. And Can I jump in before you please, shift yeah. gears? So as a psychologist, what I would add to that analysis, um, I, I think it's it's terrifying. The <clears throat> One of the things that scares me most about the concentration of power is that the wrong people are attracted to it. So if you think about um, what psychologists have called the dark triad of personality, oh, yes. um, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism. Uh, guess what? People who have those traits are more likely to want power. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, we're more likely to give it to them because we mistake their confidence for competence. And then like, people see them at some point, they're like, oh no, power corrupted. Maybe, maybe sometimes, maybe for some people. But there's also a case to be made um, empirically that power reveals that these people are really good at hiding uh, their self-serving agendas until they have free reign. And then at that point, they let all hell break loose. And I think that's the fact that that's a dynamic in social systems um, is completely terrifying and I think underscores your fear of autocracy and megalomania and anything else that you want to throw in that bucket. So I'm, I'm yeah. totally with you there. Okay, what's your other point? People, the reason that I said the X, C, D, K, whatever cartoon uh, that you're going to shoot your society in the face is that that the energy behind that cartoon is one of sides, one of like, I I am perfectly happy when I see somebody who disagrees with me shut down. Oh, yeah. And I you don't want that. I beg of everybody listening for for just your own selfish reasons. You have to want the tension between sides. I think the question people ought to ask is why are there two sides? Whether that's male, female, whether that's um, liberal, conservative, and from again me going back to an evolutionary standpoint, when you think about any social creature is going to have to deal with the, do you hold everybody responsible? And there's no sense of collective anything. It's just, hey, you didn't do your thing. I'm going to let you starve to death. I don't care, whatever. Or are you going to be just all compassion and empathy all the time where it's like, no matter what you do, I'm going to take care of you and protect you. So if you don't act as a group, you're not going to be able to cooperate. You're um, like the, the coolest thing to think of is that if I hunt and kill something, I'm better off letting you eat some of it than eat all of it myself because I can literally store calories on your body because now you'll reciprocate, right? It is, when I heard it said like that, I was like, oh my God, that's so brilliant because I can only store so much on my own body in one meal. Otherwise, I'm just gonna excrete it out. But if I let you eat some, now I've effectively stored calories on your body and it's gonna come to me the next time when I miss the hunt. So, okay, you wanna, you wanna have some amount of like, we're looking out for each other. This is a collective thing. But then you get the free rider problem mm -hmm. where other people then just become parasitic on the organism and just say, I'm not gonna do anything because you're gonna take care of me. So you need dynamic tension. So for anybody out there that has a husband or a wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and sometimes you they're driving you mad, I will remind you, you need the dynamic tension. You don't want to, you wanna share values but you don't want to see the world the same way. You want to have this dynamic tension between, I mean, especially if you're raising kids. I don't have kids, full disclosure, but like when you're raising kids, there's a reason that um, old school, like back in the day, 100,000 years ago, uh, that we don't know that, 5,000 years ago, hunter-gatherer societies, you would go and- uh, on the day of adulthood for a young boy, he would traditionally be with his mother and the men would go ceremonially, pull him away from the mother to demarcate that role, your time with the, the feminine, the soft, the gentle, the nurturing, that shit's over. And now you're going to go do something hard. We're going to take you out. We're going to make you hunt a lion or whatever their you know societal thing was. And you want both of those energies present in that child. You don't want them to never have encountered that love and that nurturing, you know, especially when they're young. And so wanting the tension between the left and the right, between the liberal and the conservative, you have to want the tension. Yeah. And my problem is people don't want the tension anymore. They think their side is right, whichever side, both sides are as ridiculous on this as the other. 
But when you want attention, and I obviously encounter this in my marriage and I encounter this in business where you, if you've read the book, Rocket Fuel, you have the visionary and you have the executor. You need both, but they often both think the other's a moron. And you have to understand that you both bring value. It's the dynamic tension. It's like a kite in a string. If you just have a string, it lays on the ground. If you just have a kite, it just crashes into a tree and you have nothing. But when you have them in dynamic tension, you can keep the kite aloft. So much. Okay. Yeah. So much to, to build on here. So first of all, um, your, your case that actually like caring for other people in your group is evolutionarily adaptive. Um, Darwin first wrote about it. Darwin, like we think of Darwin as the survival of the fittest. Like, oh, we're, we're evolutionarily selected to be selfish. Darwin wrote that a tribe of altruists would outlast a tribe of selfish people because the group that puts the tribe first would ultimately be victorious. Um, David Sloan Wilson has formalized this into a theory of group selection, which is um, very parallel to to your argument, uh, which I think is fascinating. Um, I, the dynamic tension point, I think, is so important. Um, I, I actually wrote a lot about this and think, again, the, my prior book. And I, I'm so stunned that people want to surround themselves with people who agree with their conclusions instead of the ones who challenge their thought process. Like, I don't want you to be like-minded. Great minds don't think alike. They challenge each other to think differently. You can be like-hearted, which is we have similar values. That's your point. Um, but we want to have really different views. Um, and that divergence of views with similarity of values is, is where we do the, our best learning. Um, we don't just affirm our beliefs. We actually end up evolving our beliefs based on that, which last time I checked is the only way you grow <laughs> cognitively. I think the other the other thing that's really interesting here. So I want to push back a little bit on the free speech point. I I, I think we're in, we're in actually in agreement on the principles. There's uh, there's some evidence that really got me thinking differently about this a couple of years ago. Uh, Peterson, um, the, the lead author, I think, is Michael Bang Peterson, published eight studies showing his middle name is Bang. I believe it is. It might be Bang. I think he's. Um, I he's hope Danish. it's Bang. That would be the greatest <laughs> middle name of all time. Uh, I ca- I cannot confirm or deny the pronunciation, but. Uh, he published eight studies, uh, thousands of people looking at the question of, is social media fundamentally worse than in-person interaction be- just because people are anonymous or because they don't see a human face? And there's all this evolutionary hand-waving about how you know we, we were adapted to sit here like this and talk to each other and we can respect each other and like each other, but now we're behind a screen and maybe behind a screen name. And now like I'm, you know, I no longer see you as a full human. Well, what the data showed is we should not let that drive all of our thinking because it turns out that the people who are assholes online are also assholes offline. That's not too shocking to be fair. It's not surprising, right? When you think about it, um, they tend to be nastier um, in real life too. The difference is in real life, that behavior is disincentivized. You get excluded from your group. Somebody takes you aside and says, that's not respectful. Um, and you learn to evolve it. And social media, I think, does the opposite, which is our, our algorithms amplify outrage. And so trolls learn that they can use aggression to get attention. And then all of a sudden, this behavior seems to be more common and we think people are worse than they are. And that, like, I thought that was the first problem that Elon was going to solve to take us for a full circle on the Elon conversation. My dream for Twitter was we are going to stop amplifying trolls who are just using aggression to get attention. And we're going to start amplifying people who disagree thoughtfully, who complexify conversations, who take what was you know a simple belief in one person's head and actually turn it upside down and say, there's another view to this. And now you don't just change your mind. You actually elaborate your thinking and you have a more sophisticated understanding than you did before. That to me was the future of we want to have a public a public square that makes people smarter as opposed to more tribal and more polarized. And to me, a huge disappointment is there's been no effort to build that. I don't think he ever will. And I don't think anyone will. And the reason I don't think that is I don't think that's what people want. So Elon is very careful to say uh, we want to entertain and educate or inform. Uh, and I think that that is probably necessary. Like you and I were talking before we started rolling, I had to pull my channel back from becoming doom and gloom. And the reason is I have legitimate anxiety about the future. Um, when I look at things like AI, which I really hope we get a chance to talk about today. Uh, and I think that it's probably going to be good, but I think that there is a risk that either it guts people's sense of meaning or it actually destroys us. And anytime I would express my anxiety, the episode would blow up 
And so I'm like, huh, that's, you really have to fight against that. Now, because of what I want to bring to the world and I'm already wealthy, it became very simple for me to say, okay, I'm, I'm never going to artificially lean into this. When it's real, I will talk about yeah. it, but I could easily take something and spin it more negative and it would do better. Um, so when I think about what people want, I was literally just thinking about this today. I don't know what had this on my mind, but think about like the old newspaper boys that had to like yell and shout um, to to get people to buy the newspaper. You're in a way better position if the Titanic just sank than you are if the Titanic made it in record time, right? So there we are, I mean, I'm pretty sure you talked about this in the book. We are more likely to lean towards negative stuff. So it's like, okay, we're more likely to lean towards negative stuff. Negative stuff is also just, it tends to be higher drama, more captivating. And even I, I hate that this is true, man, but even I, if I see two people arguing, I'm more likely to stop than if they're like, oh, I love you so much. Okay. So I, I think there's a false dichotomy there. So Please. first of all, I, I think you're right that I, I wouldn't say it is what people want. I'd say it's what people attend to. So our, our attention is geared toward um, what Rosin and Roisman called negativity bias or Baumeister and colleagues called bad is stronger than good. Um, and the evolutionary argument is really simple. <laughs> if you if you didn't pay attention to the good thing, you could still survive. Um, if you ignored the bad thing, then you're not going to pass along your genes um, because you got eaten by a tiger or whatever it was possible early on. Um, so it makes sense that we're wired to be hypervigilant to threats. Um, and we have an amygdala that that seems to function to do this very primitive threat detection, fight or flight kind of stuff. Um, that doesn't mean, though, that we can't activate that in a way that makes people smarter and more thoughtful. So if you respond to the people who are having an argument, we can't say, let's turn, turn that into like a world-class debate um, that... It's like the cognitive version of a WrestleMania um, match. Um, maybe that's not the right the oh, right metaphor. That's pretty good. I like that. Um, it's fun, right? You know they're actors, but they still look like they're they're really beating each other up, and they're or working at it. If they weren't even actors, they were just legitimately going. They are debating with respect, but like Lincoln Douglas style. Let's, like yeah, that's really Lincoln Douglas out. is a great example of a you know a, an amazing debate. Um, what we're looking for is basically the intellectual version of why we watch sports. Which is I, I will I will turn on any game that has Steph against LeBron. Um, I I will watch because you know these are two people who are at the very top of their field, um, who are genuinely trying to to both put forth their best effort. And there's no reason. I mean, this is part of why podcasting and YouTube have taken off. Is people there's a hunger, there's a demand for these conversations, right? And so why not build an al algorithm that penalizes people for being uncivil, but rewards them for being constructively critical? And for challenging people to think differently, um, you could try instead of a like button, a, huh, I never thought of it that way. That's button. actually interesting. Maybe, right? This, I don't know if this is going to work, but if, these are the experiments I want to run. that gets people to engage, because that ultimately- That's they, the test. You know, look, in fairness, um, they, they do have to make money because people want to get yep. paid for their work. Let's keep that in mind. Um, okay. I think I have the silver bullet as to why that's wrong. Tell me. Movies. No matter how uplifting the ending, and I went to film school, they used to beat this into us, they've got to be just high seas drama. The most dramatic, high stakes, high wire act. Now, it doesn't mean that you want it to end badly. You don't. You actually want it to end well, especially if you identify with the lead. But it needs to be dramatic. Mm -hmm. That is the thing that makes us attend to it. So I, I'm not defending the trolls. That's probably just the easiest way. And I'm yes. not a troll. Anybody can look at my feet. Yeah, that's the low-hanging fruit. Um, it's the low-hanging fruit version of getting to, I want you to attend to this thing. It's people slinging mud. Although in fairness, like if people are, if people are dicks as I perceive it, I won't follow them, but yeah. I'm sure there are people who think Elon's a dick and I follow him. So, well, so. You, I think you've made a calculus that you think his net contribution to the world is positive and you're willing to tolerate some of the things you I'll don't give like. You, I'll give you an even better one. Jordan Peterson, very controversial figure, has added so much value to my life, hmm. but I really think he's bad on Twitter. Jordan, I love you. I want to get you back on the show. And I really mean that. Like, as a contributor to humanity, I've had him on the show a couple of times. Dude is amazing. I legitimately have love for what he's done. I don't know him well enough to actually love him, but like for real, for real, like this guy's out of value to my life. And I think to the world, but the way he is on Twitter, uh, is 
not ideal from my perspective. And so that's one of those where I wouldn't be traumatized if there was a, huh, I never thought of that button and nobody was clicking it because he's just coming at it from such an angry place. But I certainly wouldn't want his account to be silenced or shut down. I'll give you another example of somebody who I think is amazing, but I'm sure there are people that just want him to shut up. Eric Weinstein, who is from a sense-making apparatus. I think he's another one, Sam Harris. Sam Harris has become so controversial, but man, do I think that guy thinks clearly. And look, there are things I disagree with him violently, but I'm glad nobody's telling him to shut up. Well, well they're telling him to shut up all the time, but th- this is this is exactly where where I've landed. So I think Sam is a really interesting example. A lot of people have objected because they disagree with his conclusions. And first it was the the left because they thought he was Islamophobic, and now it's the right because they think he's um, you know, drinking vaccine Kool-Aid. Right. And in both cases, like I I want to listen to the quality of somebody's thought process and say before I know what their conclusion is, is this somebody who who challenges me to think deeper and broader? Um, and, and Sam has that impact on me. So I respect him as a thinker. I often disagree with his conclusions and that's not the point, right? The point is that he makes me think. Mm. Um, I think that you could probably try a version of this. So I I see your film example and I raise you school. People like to learn. You could try a, this person's thinking teaches me. Um, I feel smarter after listening to this person. Um, this person opened my mind. Right? Like that, you could get people fired up about that. And you're right. We'd have to raise the stakes. We need really high importance issues uh, that people have serious emotions invested in. We need people who genuinely disagree for good faith reasons, um, who could look at the same evidence and actually agree on the standards. Um, and then maybe, you know, one of them admits they're wrong or they both realize they were wrong and they had incomplete information. I, I don't think this is easy to do. I think it's, it could be built and tested and, I don't know. If I'm running a social media company, it is the first experiment I'm running. Because it's a huge differentiator if it works. Yeah. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. What would really be interesting is if I have the option to click, oh, I never thought of that. I mean, I suppose this is a subscribe button, but uh, that I can tailor the kinds of things that I respond to. So mm-hmm. uh, that, and I mean, in fairness, if you subscribe to the right people and interact with the right people over time, the algorithm does really begin to feed you this. Cause I actually don't see many trolls except in my own comments. Uh, for the most part, it's, I'm going to see people that on my for you page anyway, that are positive, that are thoughtful just because of what I interact with. But um, I'll I'll give you school and I'll raise you video games. So we can agree on that. I when I look out at the world, so impact theory is called impact theory uh, for one very simple reason. It actually isn't for the YouTube content. It's my theory is If you want to get a growth mindset, which we've talked about the limitations of, but if you want to get a growth mindset out to people at scale, I think you have to do it through entertainment. And so the YouTube show, I say only addresses 2% of people. And so the 2%, the self-select that go on YouTube and want to learn are very different than the 98% of people that I think one, you have to reach them when they're young, which I think is critically important. And then two, you have to do it through entertainment. You have to create something they think is cool, that their friends Mm -hmm. think is cool, and that they would do, you know, regardless, like it's just intrinsically enjoyable, um, and meet them there. So if, if there were only one door that kids could walk through door, one is education and door two is video games, (laughs) video more, more people, not everybody, thankfully. Um, but more people will just because it's so aligned with the wiring of our brain and dopamine secretion and all of that. But also really useful in a bunch of ways. I I, I was stunned um, to look up a, a bunch of meta-analyses, studies of studies, showing that on average, video games actually build grit and willpower, which I mean, as a kid who grew up playing video games, that was where I learned resilience. Mm-hmm. It was where I learned to- I loved your Mario Kart example, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. That was... I mean, it's, it's, really, it's, it's exactly what I want to teach kids. You fail, you get sent back to the beginning, you have to try again and level up your skills. Mm-hmm. And then there's a reward for it. And also the process is fun. It's, it's deliberate play um, in a nutshell, which is what you're arguing for. So you, you want to talk about AI. I'm curious about where you want to go on AI. The future of work. So uh, I, there's a lot of anxiety right now around AI. I've done a fair amount of content around it. And the response that people give is like, okay, wait, how do I thrive in this world? And because we do video games, we interface with art a lot. Artists have really reacted violently against AI. And for my second or third public service announcement, I will say, um, artists, I really beg of you. When I first saw um, Toy Story, I was in film school. And when I say saw, when it came out, I refused to go watch it. Because I was like, this will be the death of traditional cell animation. And I was crestfallen. It was a it was a skill that I really wished I had a talent for. Yeah. Something I really loved. And the thought of like, people aren't going to draw anymore. It's all going to be on a computer. I really had a negative reaction. And I probably didn't see Toy Story for five years after it came out. And then I finally saw it. And I was like, oh, wow. But it made me feel something. And so now obviously artists grow up with Photoshop and all the tools that the artists don't mind, but they don't realize that that's already like wiped out a whole bunch of people that spend a lot of time learning how to do with a pencil. And if artists understand that, at least from where I'm sitting, the play is, and and I'll say this to anybody, the play is to figure out how AI can be a tool that you use Mm -hmm. to not be less creative. You're going to be more creative because now you're not limited by the execution side of this, you're 
only limited by your imagination, by what you can think of and how you can execute against that. And I get it. It's tough. If you've spent a long time training yourself to write like Maya Angelou, and now you can just go to chat GPT and it can write like Maya Angelou, boom, lickety split. Um, there is something unnerving about that. But the way that it lets all of us amplify our skills is incredible. Mm-hmm. So I I have heard you previously say, look, I can't predict the future. And so I'm really not going to take a super hard stance, but I'd love to hear like how you want people to at least, it is happening. You don't have to predict anything more than today to say this is emotionally how you should frame it. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of disclaimers. First of all, I'm an organizational psychologist. I'm not a computer programmer. Um, I'm not a tech founder. So my perspective is informed by reading the evidence, um, having studied work for two decades, and by having talked with the founders of a bunch of the big um, AI companies. If anybody tells you they know where this is going, they're lying. Um, It's changing so fast under their feet that they're just kind of trying to keep up with the machine at this point um, in a lot of cases. I think there are a few things we can say are true right now. The first one is... um, Ethan Mollick has summarized this point really beautifully. Um, he's probably my favorite thinker on AI. He has a book coming out in the spring called Co-Intelligence, uh, and he's the best synthesizer of the trends that I've seen. Um, what Ethan has highlighted in, is in a whole bunch of experiments, AI is basically a skill leveler. So if you are a poor performing software engineer or salesperson or knowledge worker of a whole bunch of kinds, if you do a lot of writing, it will help you close the gap between you and your star performing peers. And in very few of the studies, do star performers get much um, out of it? And they tend to get a lot less uh, than people who are basically Mm. catching up. So that's great news if you're trying to get better. Um, It may not help you as much if you're already really good at your job. I think the second thing we know is uh, there are reasons to be concerned because um, I think you've accurately sort of captured the history of technology, which is most new technologies displace jobs. They don't eliminate jobs. Um, We see certain kinds of jobs go away. Other jobs come in to take their place. What's different about AI is machines have never learned before. And the idea that, you know, that a machine can actually keep getting smarter um, is a threat to jobs that people just can't predict because it's a different, it's, it's why it's called exponential technology, right? Um, And so if there is an acceleration toward general artificial intelligence, I think that's where people just say, we've never seen anything like this. We don't know what it will mean. Open question. Third, you, you asked about purpose and meaning, and I, I think here there's at least some short to medium term good news, which is I just read a study of what happens when people get AI tools and robots in their jobs who didn't have, the, have them before. And the, one of the key findings was, this is over a, a multi-year process, uh, people figure out what the robots are bad at, and then they make outsmarting the robot part of their job goal. And that becomes a source of meaning and purpose for them because they've discovered what is uniquely human. At least now, the problem is we don't know what that's going to look like in two years five years, in three months, probably. Um, It's sort of a giant question mark. And so I don't know how we're going to think about that. I think, you know, my hope would be that if we get to a point where, you know, computers can actually take over um, a lot of jobs that don't get replaced, then we're going to find some version of a universal basic income that allows people to, you know, to support their their life and their lifestyle. um, And that frees people up to do more play and more social connection um, and find meaning in other in other sources. Um, but I don't think we have a, a good model for what a society looks like that yet that looks like that. And so I don't really know where to take it. We actually have more of a model than I think people realize. I was recently in Do Kuwait. We? Yeah. So in Kuwait, everyone gets UBI. So they're kicking off so much money from oil that everybody gets a stipend. It's pretty hefty. It's ballpark like $2,500, right? So it's not, it's enough that your basic needs are met but it's not enough that if you want for the finer things that you would have them. And it plays out, at least according to the people that I spoke to, uh, it plays out the way you would think it would. So people that aren't ambitious now don't need to be ambitious and they do nothing and they collect their check and that's fine. And so some strata of society just stays at like the, that they're not reaching for more. Uh, the people that are ambitious and really want to do something extraordinary with their lives, they're going to reach way beyond that. But they're like, well, at least I have that. So do I think that, I mean, look, some of them were complaining saying, yeah, that's a problem. Like people don't, because there is that net, more people than would otherwise do nothing. 
Um, but I don't think, I mean, being in Kuwait, it was lovely. It was beautiful. People were lovely. The people I was talking to anyway, were very ambitious. Um, so it's not going to crater society by any stretch of the imagination. It really comes down to how much we get now, if this world of abundance comes in and we really don't want for anything, then I worry we have a rich kid problem where you just have never had to work hard for anything. And going back to my earlier thesis, if I'm right, that working hard is just a critical part of this. So few people will need to work hard, but there will be a profound sense of disease and they won't understand why. And this is something I find really interesting. So I think right now what we're struggling from in the US is that things have been so good for so long for so many people, not everybody, I'm very aware of that. Trust me, as somebody who's worked in the inner cities, I've seen this shit up close. But even people in the grips of poverty in America have refrigerators, have usually a home, right? So it's like, whatever, if 96% of people have a home, that's a lot, that's the vast majority. So it's been so good for so long for so many people that we have fallen prey to the fourth turning of hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, and on and on the death loop goes. Um, So I do worry about that, that if it is really just an age of abundance that you get the kids that are doing coke at you know 16 and they just derail. Yeah, I worry about that too. I think, I mean, the, I guess the good news on this is humanity has a really poor track record when it comes to appreciating how good things are. Yeah. Uh, so, do you I'm, see a way out of it? I don't know. I'm sure we'll find ways to screw up any version of abundance uh, that comes. But then, if your if your sort of self correcting cycle is right, then that will in turn create a generation of like, motivated people. Um, I think the. The the experimental evidence I've seen on universal basic income is really encouraging in the sense that most people are not demotivated. Um, most people want either because they're you know aspiring for more career wise, or because they see their work as a calling, or because they're bored. There are lots of reasons. Um, you know, end up continuing to engage. I think where um, where this gets to me really interesting is I wonder. Actually, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this, but curious to get your reaction. It seems to be the case that when um, when you look far enough back in human history, there was a. Did you ever read James Sussman's book Work? No. He's an anthropologist um, who who has gone very far back into to human history and argued that basically for three hundred thousand years we did a fifteen hour work week. So this image of hunter gatherer life as you know just nasty, brutish, and short. Like, there were elements of it that were extremely nasty. You do not want to live without modern medicine, for example, um, if you can avoid it. But um, they led mostly lives of leisure, and they there was like, okay, we're going to hunt, we're going to gather, we're going to cook, we're going to cover our necessities, and the rest of the time, you build community, you did art. Um, there was a lot of creativity and connection, and so I actually wonder if there's not a blueprint for where this would go if it went there from, I guess, a, a world, a different kind of abundance, um, an abundance of time that we had for a lot of our ancestral past. What do you make of that? Uh, I I think in movies and video games. So I will say Minecraft gives you all the answers you seek. Uh, in the beginning, it that. is deadly. And the mere existence of nighttime meant that your risk of death skyrocketed. Yeah. And so there, then you uh, start as f- building safety. And then you start figuring out the movement patterns of the elk or the buffalo or whatever. And then you've got a reasonable life of you move with the herds or you sit down and you plant uh, and you harvest or you herd. And But life back in the day, to your point, one, without medicine, you're just already in a danger zone. And then two, we have played a really dangerous game with evolution from a hip to head ratio for women. And so childbirth is about the most dangerous thing that a human being could do from an evolutionary standpoint, but you got to do it. So now you've got something where you have high infant mortality rates, uh, mothers dying at, I mean, some, it, it's ridiculously high, forget the percentage of death, but it was high. And so 
that already just is one of the reasons I think that humans had to have this drive for improvement because it was just like, dude, if you didn't want to make things better, then every night people were getting eaten by lions. But because you're trying to improve, you're like, hey, wait a second, when we have a fire, I think the lions actually stay a little bit back. Hey, this dog or wolf that's coming up and asking for scraps, they'll actually bark to alert me when something comes near. Huh, this is all very interesting. And so you start putting these pieces together and you start building. I mean, this is anybody, kids that grew up with Minecraft, take it for granted because I found it at 47. I'm like, holy hell, this game is unbelievable. It is brilliant. A small set of rules creates this unbelievably unbelievably complex behavior sets. I played it in isolation. I had no idea what it was. I almost threw my controller through the TV screen. I was like, they expect kids to get good at this. What? (laughs) Like, this is so hard. And then you realize, oh, the zombies only come out at night. I didn't notice that. Okay. Days are 10 minutes long. Nights are 10 minutes long. Oh shit. I need to build shelter then. And all you start piecing this together. That is humanity. And so we are on this this march towards improvement, but we're all living in the weird ass moment where computers potentially become sentient and we now have some real potentially competition. And so now it's like all the things that got us here aren't gonna get us to the next level. And so it'll be very interesting to see what plays out. It will be interesting. It's funny, I, I think I learned some of the same lessons from playing Zelda. Um, not not identical, but it it's overlaps a, a little bit with Minecraft on on some of the themes you're talking about. I think, yeah, yeah, I I, I think this is one of the reasons that we we've talked for generations now about how cognitive skills are what separate us from animals as humans. I think moving forward, it's probably character skills, not cognitive skills, that are going to elevate us above machines. So here's what a machine can't do: um, a machine can't decide what values are worth prioritizing. Um, a large language model can basically take a bunch of people's claims about what's important to them and try to adjudicate or rate them. Uh, but it can't decide for you uh, what principles should matter to you. And it definitely can't tell you how to put those principles into practice and live them. And I wonder if that's going to be the dividend uh, where, you know, if we're, if we're trying to think about what advice do we give people who are concerned about the future of work? I would say double down on character skills. Um, it's going to be much easier for a machine to cover your coding and your language skills um, than it is for a machine to teach you to be proactive, um, to be pro-social, um, to be determined, to be disciplined. Uh, I think those are those are skills that are going to be really hard to code. And they're going to help you unearth your hidden potential. Adam, thank you for joining me today. Where can people find you? Uh, wherever they're on the internet. There it is at Adam Grant, everybody. Amazing list of books. You will love them all. Speaking of things you will love, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.